Well, we'll come to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. Uh, so if you do have a Bible with you, <clears throat> as mentioned, we are back in Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 8, beginning today at verse 18. And when you found that, if you would stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. I'll read this passage for us. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Matthew writes this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This is of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, it says Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the fact that we have access to this. We have the ability and freedom to gather around it. God, I pray today as we dive into this passage that you would open our hearts, our minds, our, our ears, break down every impediment, every wall, everything that would stand in the way or try to stand in the way of what you want to accomplish through this word, God. I pray that uh, just as you've told us, that when you send out your word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Anything that is worth having is worth sacrificing for. Now, no question, sometimes we make sacrifices for stuff that's stupid. It's, doesn't, it's not worth anything. But anything worth having is worth sacrificing, truly worth having. Isn't that what they say? You know, whoever they are. So maybe the thing that you've always wanted to have is a university degree. Maybe it's your dream career to compete at the highest level of some sport. Maybe what you wanted to have is have a child, raise a child, to have a spouse. Um, I don't know, maybe you've wanted to master that recipe that's super hard to create or, or, or complete the boss level on your favorite video game. I'm trying to with everybody I can think of here. Um, whatever it is, the point is, if you've done any of those things, or even if you've tried to do them, what you know is that as rewarding as that achievement, that relationship, that, that accomplishment is, it has almost invariably come at an incredible cost to you. You've had to sacrifice time, energy, money, uh, sleep, all kinds of things in order to accomplish and have these things. 
But whatever the cost, what I know for myself is, and maybe you'd say this is true for you as well, is that there's something about having paid that cost, something about having put in the effort that makes that achievement, that makes that relationship just that much more valuable to me than if it had cost me nothing. Is that the same for you? Having put in the cost makes it more valuable to me. So having put in all the effort, four, six, ten, whatever it is, years of study to walk across that stage and, and get that degree handed to you, infinitely more valuable than if you just like paid the tuition and they mailed you a certificate in the mail. Here you go. You're a doctor of whatever. Um, a, a relationship that's weathered sunny days as well as stormy ones has a depth and a richness to it that a straight, unwinding path could never know. I know that's not to say that we begin any of these endeavors knowing the full cost, usually, that we're going to pay. No, most times we start out blissfully ignorant of the full cost of what it's going to take to get there. But I think this saying holds true. Anything that's truly worth having is worth sacrificing for. And actually, in light of what we've seen here, the kind of value added that sacrifice brings, it almost makes me wonder if a better way to state it is anything we're sacrificing for is worth having. But all that being said, uh, one of the only places where you see and I see people still believing somehow that this principle doesn't apply or shouldn't need to apply is as it relates to our own spiritual formation what is often referred to as discipleship. Even though in almost every other area of life, we know that that sacrifice, cost, is necessary in order to get this thing that we want to have, somehow we believe, if, if we see spiritual growth as something worth having to begin with, we think that it's something that should just happen. I show up at church every Sunday, I put my money in the offering, I pray before my meals. Spiritual growth should just happen, or, or God should just take care of that for me. That shouldn't involve any cost for me. And in the end, maybe that's the problem. That, that first thing I said there, maybe, maybe we don't see anything deeper than a saving relationship with Jesus as something that's worth having. You know, like, like maybe like a firefighter who's pulled you out of a building, like, thanks for the salvation, Jesus. It's not like we need to be best friends or anything. But what I'd like to believe is that what's truly at the heart of the matter is that we simply don't yet understand just how worth having an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus is. We don't realize that it's worth sacrificing everything for in order to have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who lost his life in a failed attempt to assassinate Hitler in World War II to try to take out the Third Reich, uh, he said famously in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which, wow, that sounds really extreme. <laughs> that sounds like a lot to most of our ears. Just as Jesus' calls to discipleship in our passage today sounded strange, sounded extreme to those who first heard them. But what Jesus knew and what I believe Bonhoeffer knew as well was that the reason Jesus calls us to sacrifice everything in following him is because following him is worth everything. 
It's worth giving everything for because Jesus is that pearl of great price, like he talks about in the parable a little later on, that, that a man finds a pearl in a field and he sells everything he has in order to get that field. That's, that's what the worth of this ever-deepening relationship with Jesus is. It's worth everything we have to give. And we're going to look at what Jesus presents as the cost of discipleship as well as the calm of discipleship as we dig into this passage today. The, the cost and the calm, or maybe we call it the calm reassurance of discipleship. And if you've closed your Bibles, I would invite you to just open them again with me to our passage. Follow along with me as we look at this together. But, but the thing I want you to keep in mind, the thing to remember as we look through this this morning, and especially in light of what seems like maybe perhaps the unreasonable cost, the unreasonable cost of following Jesus, is that both the prize as well as the paradox of following Jesus, as Jesus himself says a little later in Matthew 16, everyone who seeks to save his life, everyone who seeks to hold on to all these things that we're so afraid to sacrifice for, so unwilling to sacrifice for, he says, we'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Keep that in mind as we look through this this morning. Okay, so, so let's look, first of all, what Jesus describes here as the cost of discipleship. What, what does it cost in order to have this ever-deepening relationship with him that's worth everything? Well, look with me, first of all, at verse 18, where we started. We see that just following an exhausting day of teaching and healing, Jesus gathers his disciples and heads across the Sea of Galilee to, or to get to his next place of ministry, I think is the first reason, but also as we see in verse 24, to get some much-needed rest. Jesus is exhausted. But in the following verses after this, what we see are actually three different calls to discipleship, with each one highlighting a different cost of discipleship. And the first one we see there is in verses 19 and 20. Look with me there now. And this call is unique, not simply because it involves a scribe, uh, one of these teachers of the law who, along with the Pharisees, were no fans of Jesus throughout his ministry. So it's, it's unique because of that. But it's also unique because it involves not Jesus' call of the scribe, but the scribe's call of Jesus. Let's look at this again. I'll show you what I mean. Um, Matthew writes this, a scribe came up to him, verse 19, and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, the first clue that something is off is that the scribe addresses Jesus not as Lord, but as teacher, which maybe that doesn't sound like that big a deal to us, but as numerous commentators, uh, commentators pointed out, nowhere in Matthew's gospel does anybody who's a committed follower of Jesus refer to him as teacher. You never see a committed follower of Jesus calling him teacher. It's always the scribes, the, the Pharisees, those who are trying to catch Jesus in some kind of trap or whatever. They, they begin their saying with teacher, Fill in the blank. Uh, F.D. Bruner points out the clearest problem with the scribes addressed, though, however, noting this. He says, the focus of the remark, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, note well is the dedication of the speaker. The subject of this sentence, not only grammatically, is the Bible teacher himself, and when listened to carefully, his remark has overtones of Jesus, this is your lucky day. I have decided to be your disciple. 
Thank you so much. He goes on, to this man, Jesus is primarily an attractive teacher, and since this candidate's skill is teaching too, he now announces to Jesus, announces, not requests, that he is Jesus' man completely. Thank you so much. Essentially, I think what's going on here is this, this scribe, he sees an opportunity in following Jesus, an opportunity for career advancement, to lend his skill and credibility to Jesus' ministry, maybe teach Jesus a few things along the way. And so he, can, he comes and announces his gracious intention to hitch his wagon to Jesus' ministry train. When you look at Jesus' response there in verse 20, what we see Jesus indicating is that whatever opportunity this man thinks he gains by following Jesus, by jumping on the Jesus bandwagon, is that no fame, no prestige, no, no place of honor among the religious establishment awaits him. It's like it's, it's not that kind of opportunity you think it is. And if you notice, it's interesting, Matthew doesn't give us the scribe's response, how he responds to that which I think is actually an intentional choice of Matthew, in order to call us to consider our own response to the cost that Jesus gives here. For I think what Jesus is indicating to you and to me is that one cost of discipleship that we need to be willing to pay in order to have this ever-deepening relationship with him is pride. Our pride is one of the costs of discipleship we need to pay. We live in a day and age not unlike Jesus' day at all, actually, where everyone is so about themselves. They're so into me and myself, my own little kingdom, my own little world. It's all about status and networking, who you're connected to, uh, how many followers you have. Um, but as D.A. Carson notes, quote, nothing was aimed at by our Lord less than to have followers. That is, those who would you know, like and share his posts because he was popular and trending. Jesus is not at all interested at all in these kind of followers. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of humility, a kingdom where God himself lays down position, lays down status in order to save those who have neither. And so therefore, those who follow him in his kingdom must also be willing to do the same. And I don't know, I don't know if it's the same for you, but as I read through this and I come to this cost of discipleship, one of the things I know for myself is that this is a cost of discipleship that I have regularly found the hardest to sacrifice as I seek to follow Jesus. I find this one probably the hardest. For without an ounce of pride, I can honestly say to you, as I've, as I've looked into my life and looked at myself over the years, I have come to see that I'm a profoundly proud person. Profoundly proud. I've felt like Jesus was lucky to have me on his team. I felt superior to people and felt threatened by people who I knew were superior to me. I see it all through my life. And, and some of the deepest chisel blows that God has dealt to me over my life have been directly t on this area to rid me of my self-destructive sin of pride. Not to, not to punish me, not to cut me down to size, but in order to make me look more like him. That's why he's done that. So for any other people who, who struggle like that in the same way, what, what Jesus is showing us here is that Jesus isn't looking for celebrities to make him look better. That's not who he's seeking. Jesus didn't need Kanye and Bieber to, to rep him, to make him look cool and hip. 
Uh, he could take care of that on his own. What he's looking for is willing followers who will just humbly lay down the kingdom of self and follow him wherever it is he leads. That's what he's seeking. So the first cost of discipleship, our pride. The next call to follow and the next cost that we see is in verses 21 and 22. So let's look now there. Matthew writes, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now the first thing to note is that Matthew refers to this man as another disciple. That's strange, which means in some sense or other, the scribe was also a disciple of Jesus. I don't want to get caught in the weeds, but I think it's important to mention that because it seems, at least in the early stage of Jesus' ministry, Matthew uses the term disciple more broadly. So he can refer to anyone who happens to be like interested in Jesus, checking him out as a disciple of his. And so he often refers to them as the disciples. And then the 12, the chosen 12 of Jesus, like you see in verse 23, he refers to as his disciples. So it's a small distinction, but I think that's how Matthew kind of differentiates between those who are just interested in Jesus and those who are truly following him. But as it relates to this disciple, he, he begins by addressing Jesus as Lord, so good start, and then goes on to make what seems like a very reasonable request to go and bury his father before leaving all to follow Jesus. And, and man, if you've ever started a new job before, you know this is a completely acceptable thing to do. If you've got other uh, responsibilities, a vacation plan when you're about to start, it's, it's reasonable to let your employer know, say, I've already got this booked, and kind of negotiate your start date. That makes sense. But in response, Jesus gives what like, is like at best a strange response, and at worst, what seems to be one of the most insensitive and rude responses possible to his request. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's like, wow, okay. But, but in understanding the cultural kind of baggage or assumptions that are tied into this man's request, what we begin to see is that it's actually this person this disciple who's actually being rude uh, and, and not Jesus. For although honoring your father and mother uh, with their funeral proceedings was, yeah, it was a sacred, expected role of any devout Jewish person, what commentators help in pointing out kind of the historical baggage attached to this is that this man's father didn't even necessarily have to be dead yet. So that what this man could actually be saying here in his request is that his father is getting older. His father is close to dying, and so he wants to return home, perhaps, perhaps for the next several years, and then once his father dies, he'll do the funeral, and then he'll come follow Jesus. So uh, Leon Morris notes this. He says, in effect, he was saying, someday, after my father dies, I'll come and follow you, Jesus. How many of us have, have heard the call of Jesus on our life and given him a someday? I'll do that, Jesus, someday. I, I just got this first. Once again, look, we're not given the man's response, actually. We're not told how he responds to Jesus' denial of his request. But I think, once again, Matthew's intention is to call us to consider our own response to this next call of discipleship, which is, I'm just going to call competing priorities. Competing priorities. And I want to be careful how I unpack this, because this is the cost 
that there are some who in the name of paying this cost of discipleship have sacrificed their marriages, their families, their friends, in order to, they've sacrificed these things on the altar of their ministry, not realizing that what Jesus is actually calling them to do is to reprioritize what's most important in their lives. For nowhere in this response is Jesus saying, bro, just forget about your stupid father. Ditch these family responsibilities that are just weighing you down. If you want to follow me, you got to like cut that baggage loose and follow me. I'm the most important thing here. That, that's not what Jesus is saying to this guy. We need to see and recognize that what Jesus is actually doing is just calling this man's bluff. He's calling out his stalling indecision in committing to follow him. And he's just saying, listen, follow me. Follow me or don't. But, but what you don't get to do is follow me and something else at the same time. Following me requires ultimate allegiance. I must be the first priority. And man, when you think about how this applies to our lives today, this is an entirely relevant question for us to think about too. With with so much going on in our lives, so many things that are so important to us, to consider this cost as well. For not if you do, but man, how many times have you... (laughs) Do you and I try to either mask our fear or our lack of faith in what Jesus is calling us to do or the fact that we just have things that are more important than him with important sounding excuses like this? We've all got a million excuses of just like, well, but, but this, and, and what Jesus is trying to say here is you might fool everybody else with that. Other people might say, good for you, that's, that's right, you should do that first. But Jesus is saying, I see what's really in your heart. I see what's true. And again, the point is not to punish you or, or, or to uh, punish you for having people or things in your life that are important to you, telling you to just drop all your other responsibilities and priorities in your life. This cost of discipleship is not to rob you of things you treasure. It's actually to free you in order to be able to truly have them, to love them and cherish them. For, for where a certain relationship, I mean, you see this all the time, a certain relationship, a certain cause that you're passionate about, your, your, your kid's sporting involvement, whatever it happens to be, when that becomes the most important priority in your life, those things just tend to become God's. Those are the things you sacrifice for, including your relationship with Jesus. That becomes the most important thing. And then, unfortunately, those gods that we sacrifice for, they can't actually follow through on what they're promising. And they can't last. But as Jesus says so simply back in the Sermon on the Mount, when we looked at that, it feels like forever ago. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make, make following where I'm leading you the first priority in your life, and then all these other things which are so important to you will be added to you as well. I'm not trying to take your stuff from you. It'll be added to you as well, but you'll have it, and you'll have those treasures and priorities in a way that you can truly have them, and you can truly hold them for all time because they won't no longer be controlling you or, or competing with your following of Jesus. Last call to follow Jesus we see in our passage, verse 23 to 27. A call into a storm. And the cost of discipleship Jesus presents to you and to me in the midst of this storm is the call to sacrifice control. We've looked at pride, we've looked at competing priorities now, the cost of discipleship here is control. Any other control freaks here? I also find this one hard. <laughs> okay. This, this is a story well known to many perhaps, beautifully pictured by Rembrandt's famous 
painting of Christ in the storm. I don't know if you see this. I've got a print of this up in my office even because I love it so much. The disciples caught in a furious storm at sea, straining at the oars, fearing for their very lives, and Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. In Matthew's telling of the story, the disciples wake up Jesus and say, here, save us, Lord, we are perishing. In Mark's uh, account of the exact same event, they, they ask, Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? So we begin to look at this. I love what Michael Wilkins writes in his final call of Jesus to follow him, noting this, quote, in contrast to the preceding two, the disciples do follow Jesus. So I think Matthew uses that language intentionally there in verse 23 when he says the disciples got into the boat and followed him. He's saying they, they do follow him, but he goes on here, their participation in the nature miracle demonstrates both the deficiency as well as the expected growth of discipleship to Jesus. So just pointing out They've still got a ways to go. That's what Jesus is revealing, but it's a good thing because he's helping them to grow. But what both the call and the cost of discipleship in this last section of our passage reveals, first of all, is that the call to follow Jesus is not a quiet, cushy, problem-free existence. That's not what he's called us into. And maybe we would smile at that and be like, of course it's not. I know that... Following Jesus doesn't mean that I'm never going to have any problems in my life. I, I get that. And yet, man, if you follow Jesus for even more than five minutes, how, how, many, how many of us, like I don't even know a single one of us who haven't found themselves in a, in a multiple of different scary, painful, heartbreaking circumstances over the course of our lives and called out, wait, well, why is this happening to me? God, how could you let this happen to me? You see what I did for you last week, how I helped on what I'm trying to do? How could this happen to me? Don't you care that I'm drowning? We even said the exact same things to Jesus. So while the call remains the same, follow me. The cost of discipleship now is to surrender to control. Surrender our control, submit our will to his, and trust that where he leads us, where he calls us to follow, and what he allows into our lives, actually, even however incomprehensible it often seems to us. It is best, actually, that it is needful and purposeful for our spiritual formation. It feels, it feels safer. It feels so much easier with 2,000 years of history between us to, to look at this whole scene from a distance. And we can, yeah, we can trace the, the purpose of God through it uh, and see how, you know, Jesus is actually trying to reveal their lack of faith. He's trying to reveal to them who he truly is, his sovereign power over creation. We, we can see all that because we get to see how the story works out. It's way easier and, and from, from that perspective. It's a very different thing when you're in the midst of the storm yourself. When waves are flooding over the side of your boat and Jesus seems unmoved, indifferent, to the fact that you're drowning. Maybe you're listening to this right now and you're like, I'm, I'm in that storm right now and Jesus seems nowhere to be found. But once again here, the, the cost of sacrificing control, or at least our sense of control, is not to punish you. It's not because God is some kind of cosmic control freak who needs everything to happen just according to the way he needs it but it is in order to grow your trust in the goodness of his plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
to learn by experience that where he calls you to follow really is best. And no, not the easiest, not, not the safest, not the path of least resistance, but the best in order to complete the good work that he began in you and to form you more and more into his image and likeness. Okay, so that's the cost of discipleship, or at least the costs that we have listed in our passage today, our pride, the, the priorities of our life, what we prioritize most highly, and control. All necessary sacrifice Jesus calls each and every follower of his to make in order to lose our lives so that in him we might truly find them. Last thing I want to look at together with you from our passage this morning is the calm of discipleship. Or you could call it the calm assurance of discipleship. And man, we need to look at this, particularly in light of our rephrased axiom where we said anything worth sacrificing for is worth having. Because if Jesus is going to call every follower of his to make these sacrifices, then it's pretty important to know whether or not what he offers us in an ever-deepening relationship with him is actually worth what he's calling us to sacrifice. Is it worth it? And where we see what Jesus offers us in our passage today is in his response to the storm that was threatening those who followed him in the boat there in verse 26. Look with me there. We're going to get to Jesus' response to his disciples in a second. But first, look at the second half of verse 26 where we read this. Then Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. A great calm. Calm. I love D.A. Carson's comment on this miraculous display of Jesus' divine authority when he writes, Jesus' authority over nature is now displayed. He may have less shelter than the beasts and the birds of nature, yet he is nature's master. And there's no question, this, this is one of the more stark, unmistakable displays of Jesus' divine authority as the Son of God, as, as we have anywhere in the New Testament. As, as Jesus displays the same sovereign power over his creation that he had when he first created it. One of the things that stands out most to me is when, when you note the incredible nature of Jesus' power. As the storm is not just said to die down at his command, but that there is immediately at his word, a great calm. I don't know if you've ever like, been playing in a swimming pool, and when you get out, it's like the water continues to still do this for like a while. What Matthew's describing here is immediate dead calm. The winds have gone, there's not a wave on the sea. Indicating the complete, utter deliverance from that storm that was just threatening him. That's, that's what he's illustrating. Complete deliverance. So, the power to deliver you to the uttermost. As well as the offer of calm and reassurance regardless of any threat that may come against you. That, that's what Jesus is offering. To every follower of his. Not just to make things a little bit easier, to help you cope with some of the hard circumstances, to deliver you to the uttermost. That's what he's offering. Man, yeah, I'd say, I'd say that's, that's worth sacrificing for. I'd say it's worth sacrificing everything for. And what I love most about what Jesus offers is how realistic it is. Realistic of just what life is like. 
For, for, for not only does Jesus display his ability to deliver in this miraculous way, which sure, that's, that's reassuring in and of itself, but also it's just so realistic about promise as well because notice Jesus doesn't offer deliverance from every threat, every storm, every overwhelming circumstances in the life of his followers. That's not what he's offering. Simply his powerful presence with you as well as through whatever might come against you. Because we know that these things still come. We know that that diagnosis still comes. We know that that relationship still breaks down. Whatever it is, that stuff just happens. It does. We're living in a fallen world where things don't operate like they were meant to. But to know that we have Jesus' divine presence who is able at exactly the right moment when it's needed to bring utter salvation, utter deliverance, as well as just to be there with you, to walk along with you, not to send you out ahead. He goes with us. It's a subtle distinction, but it's an incredibly important distinction for the mistaken or under the mistaken belief that many have had that that is how it should work, that if I follow Jesus, I should just be delivered from all these things. How many people over the years have been disillusioned in their faith or have lost their faith altogether when these things come anyway. I thought, I thought that you would help me because I'm following you and then this happens to me, I'm out. It certainly seems at least to some extent to be what happening, what's happening to Jesus' disciples in the moment who, if you notice, interestingly, Matthew refers to there in verse 27 as the men for a moment, not his disciples. When this miracle-working Lord who they'd chosen to follow, who healed the sick, delivered the oppressed, now appears either helplessly indifferent or hopelessly unable to deliver them in their own distress. Like, we've seen you do all this stuff. We know you can do it. Why won't you help us? And they lose their faith. But what we see in Jesus' response to his disciples here and, and what he's revealing to us as well, every follower of his today, regardless of whatever storm is facing you, is neither a chastising rebuke for disturbing him with their prayers, nor is Jesus somehow like incredulous as to what the big deal is. It's not like he was literally saying to these people who just nearly drowned, like, what were you so worried about? That, that's not what he's saying. What we see is the loving, patient hand of Jesus assuring his followers of the truth that although it may look to you like I'm indifferent, it may look like I'm absent and, and unable to help in your struggle, I am, I am both faithfully present, I'm with you, and I'm in complete control of every fearful circumstances facing you and I've been in control of it the whole time. That's what he reveals in his response. I know it seemed like I didn't care, but I'm with you. And I'm able to fully de deliver you. I'm, I'm in control of the situation. You're not out of control, as, as chaotic and out of control as it seems. It means following Jesus is not about being delivered from facing anything fearful. It means that following Jesus in, with him in the boat, we no longer need to be afraid. Which I don't know, maybe for some of us begs the question, if Jesus is truly worth sacrificing for, why wouldn't he provide this calm for his disciples from the beginning? Why let them go through this difficult stuff at all? If he's so worth giving all this stuff to, he doesn't seem that great. Why would he just deliver us? Why can't he deliver us from having to go through it at all? It's a great, it's a great question, and I want to 
close this morning by considering that together. Because it's not everything, no. I mean, God's ways will always be mysterious to us to some degree. I mean, he's God, he's, he's not us. But I wonder if part of the answer to that question is in remembering that discipleship is a process, not an event. Let me say that again to us to remind us. Discipleship is a process, not an event. We are not, any of us, fully formed the moment Jesus calls us, either in our faith or into his image and likeness. No, right? I mean, just, and think about any relationship that you've been involved in, of any depth and substance. If, if you've been in a relationship like that, you know that it's a process over time. It takes a lifetime and a lifetime of experience. Of, of that relationship being tested and then grown and then tested and then grown in order for it to, to develop into this really strong thing that you can rely on. And so what we see here as it relate, relates to our relationship with Jesus is that just like the disciples here, what we learn is that the calm assurance of God is something we learn most often in the midst of storms, not in their absence. We learn most about him in those times when we need him to deliver us. We learn of his grace, his power, his faithfulness. We learn the fact that his ways are good and can be, and can be trusted as we go through these difficult situations and, and have these things revealed to us again and again and again. The, the hope is that our faith is strengthened and our trust in him has grown. And I wonder if another part of the answer, as I said when we began this morning, simply just comes down to the fact and the reality that we, we still think discipleship is something that should just happen. Maybe I think that's part of the reason we ask that question because we don't understand or don't believe that there should be any cost involved whatsoever on our part in order to grow in this ever-deepening relationship with him. But if you think about it, it's, it's such a strange conclusion to come to particularly when you consider that the sacrifice of everything is what it costs Jesus in order to have a relationship with you. Seems like having a relationship with you was worth sacrificing for. When you think about Jesus' utter deliverance, the calm that he brings, if you think about the only other story in Scripture that I could think of where you see a storm at sea that is immediately calmed, maybe you know, is the story of Jonah. Jonah, another servant of God, out on a storm uh, that is threatening to sink everybody. Jonah is thrown willingly overboard into the sea and immediately the storm threatening them is calmed. Everyone on board is saved. Do you know this story? In his work on this passage, Tim Keller masterfully, masterfully kind of ties together these two accounts together, noting this. Jesus calms all storms and stills all waves. He comes to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and kill death. How can he do that? He can do that only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm under the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice for all our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away. And he concludes the comparison like this. He says, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into the ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, which, by the way, takes time. 
It's something that we learn and, and are reminded to come back to over time as we do it more often. If that is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? This is what Jesus was willing to sacrifice in order to have you. To offer you his calm in the midst of any and every storm that might still come against you today. And in light of that, is the cost of discipleship, your pride, your priorities, your control, really so high a cost that it's not worth sacrificing everything in order to have him. May God give us wisdom as well as courage to answer that question and respond for ourselves. I believe it is. Amen.